Now, maybe some of you have been to some form of church before. Um, and so you're like, oh, he picked that text. Don't most pastors like to preach on this? Well, we go straight through Scripture. So you can't avoid it, nor can you spend forever on it, but we're taking our time. And the biggest problem with this text is because many people are familiar with it. So we can nod at the information and agree that it's true, and yet not really actually apply it to our lives. And that would really, really stink, because this seems to be the one thing that Jesus gauges all Christianity by. And interestingly enough, primarily how we treat each other, not just how we treat the lost world around us. Paul the same when he looks at his churches, when he says, for instance, be it the Thessalonians, the labor of love that you have for one another, or be it the other churches like Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians, where he's gauging that by the love that I see for all of the saints. That's where it starts, by the way. We should be the easiest to serve and the hardest to love. Because to be honest, the easiest person to love would be the hardest person to like. <laughs> and that becomes part of our problem today. So, here we are. Let's go through chapter 13. We are going to, by the way, as we go again at this kind of breakneck speed, we will cover the end of chapter, or verse 6, and in the entirety of verse 7. <laughs> so, uh, go with me. Let's read up to that point, if you will. Let's pray and let's get context for what we're reading here. <clears throat> Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and, and though I have all faith, so that I could, re- I could remove mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to the poor, to feed the poor, and, and I give my body to be burned, but have not love, I, it profits me nothing, I gain nothing. But love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, and does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And that's where we're at now. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I don't want this to be simply transfer of information. I don't want this to be something where we can simply nod and agree that the information is correct. What I want is for every one of us to be revolutionized. So run over by you. So reached by you. So touched by you. That tonight will be the best church service we've ever had in our life. Because we've encountered you with ready hearts, open hearts, steerable hearts, with hungry minds to know you, not just it, but to know you and your call in our lives. Father, that tonight in this room, you would do such a powerful thing by the power of your spirit that you would speak to every one of us right where we are desperate to hear you, where we are starving to understand, where we are craving for strength and encouragement, where we are just in that place of desperation for peace. Meet us there and speak what we need to hear from you tonight. 
So, Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit so that you would be seen. And come upon me in such a way and fill me to overflowing so that, Lord, I spill you all over every one of us here tonight. That you would do your work now. Lord, that you would so profoundly minister. That we would have so much fun in your word. That we would so be so captivated in your truth. That all we can do is say hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That we could say you are truly worthy of all praise. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you now. And pray that you would do your work. And Lord... Here we are, we're yours, even before we start. We, th- we volunteer, voluntarily throw ourselves on the surgeon's table, <clears throat> knowing that you are the great physician. Not just a good one, the great physician. So do your work, Lord, we pray. But may we leave here tonight well, spiritually vibrant, thriving in you, Losing all of those ugly pounds of the world. Compromise. Numbness. Indifference and apathy. That your Holy Spirit would do your work now, I pray. Your work, your way. We commit every second of this now to you. In Jesus' in your name. Amen. I would say tonight, as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. The Bible is the authority. I do like that, by the way. The church that we're looking at is a church in dire situation. It's in a rough spot. For reference, this was a church that had been planted about five years ago by a traveling evangelist, the traveling church planter, or we might call him an apostle. Now, this particular man, by the way, going back just a little bit, this particular man was a man that... Well, wasn't raised to be a Christian. He was raised in a very vibrantly Jewish home. And actually at the feet of Gamaliel, raised in the very best of Jewish teachers. The Talmud, a collection of Jewish traditions, about roughly collected about 580, uh, would say that Gamaliel was the last great teacher or the great light of the Torah. As a matter of fact, he was the grandson of one of the two greatest in their own opinion, a man named Shammai. Now, hello, I'm sorry. This particular man raises Paul, Saul at the time, Shual, which means sought after in Hebrew. He raises him to be his star student, his valedictorian, his trophy student. And the man is raised up, and he really does rise to the occasion. You know, there's some that you sort of put in the remedial Jewish class. You know, you teach them how to roll a log and teach them that there's something about that that relates to Scripture. And then there are those that you give the higher things to and you let them sit and ponder. Well, this was one of those. The problem is, just like we would in any form of secondary school here, you get to that point where sooner or later you sort of have to pick a specific field of interest. And with that, he was sort of, you could see sort of the scouting, where do I go with this? Until this strange group of people arise. Now, we know that Gamaliel was one of the ruling party. He was required to be at any form of major inquisition, any form of well, any form of judgment that required or even was possible to give the death penalty, Gamaliel was supposed to be there for. He was part of that Sanhedrin, that 70. And if you know anything about the way that you have disciples, they just basically tag along. The best example I might give you is if you've ever been to a restaurant 
and somebody goes to take your order, but there's another guy that stands sort of awkwardly next to them with no real thing to do at the moment. They're just sort of there shadowing them to learn what to do so someday they can remove and put themselves in that place. Well, that's the idea of most of the discipleship that you'd see. And the reason I say that is when Gamaliel is in there, he had to be in the council for the trial of Jesus. Which means if he was there, that would mean that Saul would have had to be there too. To hear as false witness after false witness stands, and by the way, of the ten laws of Jewish jurisprudence, every one of them broken. And one of them, by the way, is one false witness declares a mistrial. And whatever the punishment could have been on the guilty party is inflicted upon a false witness. Could you imagine if that were the case today? Someone bears forth some form of lie in court, and whatever the thing that could have punished the uh, defendant now gets punished upon the uh, practiced upon every one of the people who say the lie. Well, consider this. With all of that, Jesus is persecuted, he's prosecuted, he is killed, murdered, tortured, dies on a cross for your and my sin, just as it had been promised for over 2,000 years, and rises again just like he had promised, just like Scripture had promised in Hosea, and by the way, a thousand years prior, all the way back in the book of Psalms. And with all of that, the problem gets worse. Because when Jesus was arrested, all of his disciples did flee. It was basically Jesus and his assailants. But at his resurrection, this group of ragtag, ragamuffin, sort of backwoods Galileans now become emboldened with the truth of a resurrected Savior, and nothing can stop them now. The same group that now prosecuted their Savior and Lord, they are standing before and saying, shut up about the name of Jesus. And they say, judge for yourself whether it is right to serve God or you. Clearly, what you're demanding that I do is actually opposite of what God demands that I do, and I'm going to side with God. And again, if that be the case, then Saul would have had to be there for that as well. And at this point now, Saul finds his area of interest, killing Christians, this offshoot cult thing from the Jewish traditions. And he then finds his purpose in life, his raison d'etre, his reason for being, and off he goes to persecute, prosecute, and kill every Christian he can get his hands on, ripping wife from husband, husband from wife, child from parent, parent from child. That's just what he had to do. And on his way over 120 miles north of Jerusalem, he has letters now from the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, and off on his way, there he is. He's got a group of guys waiting for him in Damascus and on his way with a posse at hand. Jesus knocks him off his high horse and says, Shual, Shual, why do you persecute me? And I do love the fact that Jesus takes very seriously when you are being prosecuted or persecuted for his name's sake. He takes it personally. And with that, Saul asks the most important questions that could ever be asked. One, who are you, Lord? And second, what do you want me to do? If you could ask God those two questions and you're willing to, act, to obey what he answers, you'll be just fine. Who are you and what do you want me to do? Now Jesus actually says, well, I'm Jesus. And at that point, I would imagine the lump on his throat became the size of a watermelon. Could you imagine? Oh, dang. Aren't you supposed to be dead? I've been killing all of your followers. And with that, then, so what do you want me to do? And Jesus says, you know what? Actually, go to where you're going. But it's going to be a little different when you get there than you think. And imagine if we were the Christians in Damascus, and we're getting the stories about this madman with his posse coming to arrest us. 
And someone comes in and says, oh, he's about 30 miles away. And we're like, oh, man, oh, Lord, please kill him. Lord, please slay the army. You did it in the Old Testament. Lord, do it. Wouldn't we be praying those kind of things? Which, by the way, wouldn't necessarily be the heart of God. That'd be like Peter and John, or John and James saying, do you want us to call fire down on the Samaritans? And Jesus says, you don't even know what spirit you're of. Oh, Lord, 20 miles, 20 miles, oh my goodness, Lord, please, at least put a wall between him, a pillar of cloud, anything, Lord, just please, I love my family. 10 miles, oh, I'm just going to call my wife one last time, honey, I love you, my children, I'm not going to deny Christ, kids, goodbye. And imagine if in that moment when we're praying, one of you has the chutzpah, Let's just pick somebody. Allie, because it would be perfect for Allie to do this. And here we all praying, and we're praying white knuckles. We're like, Lord, God, please save us. Please don't die. I don't want to die. Right? And all of a sudden, Allie stands up and goes, well, what if actually he gets saved on the way? We'd all turn around and go, shut up. Oh, God, please, anything, just do anything. Wouldn't we? I mean, that's impossible, right? No. Just improbable. But it sure makes for good writing because it's the truth. And he shows a blind, blinded, and saved. And that man will then try the way he did before. He'd learn how to argue. He's a great debater. And please hear me in this. If I offend you on anything, take it to Scripture, please. Saul, I've been taught how to, to argue. That's what you're taught by Gamaliel, how to debate to use that great intellect to turn people into pretzels, to show them that they were intellectually inferior. You were the intellectual gymnast, and they were like the intellectual, really old guy with rigor mortis. And there you were doing flips. And so he tries it. He tries to add the old practice to the new Jesus. And it doesn't work. Everywhere they go, they want to kill him for good reason. Finally, they shovel the guy off to where he started. Tarshish, Cilicia, southeast Turkey. And there, more than likely, he learns how to make tents. So think of it this way. Mario gets caught up in Christ. And he's Greek. I'm Greek. We argue. We're Greek. Hey, what's wrong with you? Hey, you need to give your life to Christ. To Christos. I mean... And they want to kill him, so they ship him off back to southern Cyprus or to Plaka in Athens. And there he is, and he's working at an MOT, flipping burgers at a chip joint or making moussaka, <laughs> running a souvlaki stand. Sorry, I'm making myself hungry talking like that. And there he is for years, trying to live normal with this amazing call on his life. Let me just say, the call that God has on your life, you're not going to be able to blend in with the woodwork anymore. Because you're not even furniture. You're a living being. So with all of that said, what happens? Well, all of a sudden, the camera crew gets pulled out of Jerusalem because, well, that's not really happening there anymore. Basically, it's become like the old thing. We set up our shop. If we build it, they will come. And we have our building, and everyone kind of comes. And now we're, there's no outreach. That whole Jerusalem, Judea, all Samaria, ends of the earth, that stuff really isn't happening anymore. 
We're just busy setting it up politically and making sure the structure is right. Now we have our handbooks to hand out. Now we have all of our rules and our laws, and we make sure that you come in. This is the, you know, the clothes you wear, and this is what you do, and, and this is the time you get out. But meanwhile, something really strange in grassroots is happening 200 miles due north of there in the area of Syria, Antioch. Now, this is a really strange group of people because, well, they're, they're Hellenists. In other words, they're Jewish people, but they don't do things traditionally Jewish. They do things more Greek. And there they are, these sort of crazy people that kind of, you know, their names are like Rosenbaum and this Stein and so forth. But yet in all of that, they're still practicing things in a very Greek way. And, and, and then people are getting saved. So they send a couple guys from Jerusalem to, to validate whether this is a real deal. Are you following me so far? I know this is sort of a lengthy story, but it gets to where we need to be. So they send a guy, by the way, and the guy's name is actually Yoshesh, which, by the way, means fruitful or doubles or increases. Kind of a nice name. But the disciples gave him a nickname. They called him Barnabus. Nabar means son. Nabus means encouragement. So in other words, this is a guy that's like, today we might say Mr. Encouragement. And that becomes his name. So imagine, that becomes your, that becomes your name. We, you know, you're sent from London to go check on this new thing that's taking place now. So, or whatever in this case. And, so, and as this thing happens, this guy likes what's happening so much, he doesn't go home. Because remember, nothing was really happening in Jerusalem anymore. So he just kind of says, hey you guys, you can send up my stuff. And off he went. And while he's there, and we read that the guy's a prophet, and while he's there, things, great things are happening. People are getting saved. There's this revival. It's a beautiful thing because listen to the difference. All of a sudden, it went back from politics back to the person of Jesus. And the moment Jesus becomes the center of everything, it starts to explode again. That's always going to be the case. The moment it moves to the handbook and the moment it moves to everything else to where getting two things before you get to Jesus happens, well, that's going to take quite a while before anything great happens because you've got too much to hop over. And for a lot of people, they don't like it. It looks like barbed wire. Now, I'm not talking about avoiding Scripture or denying any truth. But I'm talking about the things that we can do that kind of just make it difficult. And we can do this when we go out onto the streets and talk to people. What will happen is we want to talk to them and go, well, what about this or what about that? And we'll tell them, well, let me tell you how I feel about this. And let me tell you how I feel about, the, about the, you know, this and the, the liberal Democrats. And let me tell you how I feel about this. And oh, we're going to vote today. How are you, you going to vote? And I, let me ask, before we, I even share Jesus with you, are you an Arsenal fan or not? As if that should matter. I was like, oh, well, never mind. I'll send my friend. And it becomes about all of these other things. And because some of us are intellectual enough, We'll be like, yeah, I'll step in the ring. And I, well, the problem is, even when you win, you lose. You may win the argument, but you'll never win the soul that way. Any of you argued into Jesus? Because if you are, then you could be argued out. It's a work of God. That's the beautiful thing. Isn't that the beautiful thing? Because it's so simple. So in this case, you can imagine this guy, Mr. Encouragement, goes north. And he looks and he goes, oh, this is what I remember. This is what it's supposed to be like. The problem is, is that it has everything but one thing, and that's a pastor. It's like, man, we need somebody to teach the word here. You guys are on fire. He goes, I know this guy. And boy, he knew scripture. And he was a little rough around the edges. Man, imagine having to apologize for Saul. But boy, he knew his word. Oh, he was taught well. But, and, he's, and he's really, well, where is he? I don't know. As he went back to where he came from, decided to send him away. So, now understand, this is before Google, this is before the internet, this is even before phones. Believe it or not, for some of you, that there was a time that existed. But to be honest, the internet looked like a pigeon. 
Too sorry. And, and unfortunately, when it crashed, it really crashed. That was the way that worked, you know? I'm like, oh, you never got my memo. Mm, somebody probably ate it. So imagine you have to show up in this town and you have to go door to door. Hey, do you know a guy named Saul? Saul who? I don't know. Kind of Jewish guy? Southern Turkey? I don't know. He just got here. Oh, yeah. I think I know a guy like that. He's actually working. He's in Plaka. Oh, yeah, he's, he's working right now. He's, he's, got a, he's got a souvlaki stand. Really? You know? Harry Hamas Brothers. All right. You show up and you say, bro, listen, listen. There is this amazing thing taking place, and I need you to come. Could you imagine what that would be like for him? Would it take faith to go, okay? Or do you just go, enough with the souvlaki. I'm out of here. But Saul has to go in faith, and he does. And he becomes their pastor for a year at this beautiful place 200 miles north of Jerusalem, Syria, Antioch. Are you with me so far? Have you gone to the land of Nod yet? Now you know why we're only doing a verse. But see, here's the most amazing thing. That's just the beginning of his journey as, as a minister. Hey, that would be enough for many. You, I'll be honest, there are some that do that and they stop listening to God because they're just convinced that's enough. Sort of like the two and a half tribes that stayed east of the Jordan River because, to be honest, it was good enough. That was training. See, what Saul had to learn, and this is what any arguer has to learn, is how to love people. You see, you can, you can argue with people all day and hate them. In fact, I know people that probably hate me and would rather argue as a result of that. But to love people, you've got to listen. And it's now everything about speaking becomes service. Not slaying them. And that becomes rough. And so for a year, he's there learning how to serve in his teaching. Not how to elevate himself. Not how to impress. But how to underrow. And then there they are fasting and praying and the Holy Spirit speaks. And he says, now separate from me those two guys. Saul and Barnabas. By the way, it's always listed, by the way, as Barnabas and Saul. Can we assume that Barney's the older one? I have a special word just for them. Now, what would it be like if we were the people in Antioch? Would we want to see this guy leave? Now, we don't know what kind of relationship. All we know is that when Saul goes on these mission trips, he seems to go back to the church there to report and tell them what's going on. Would you let him go? Could you not? I know how that feels. I know how it feels to go, this is it. Things are comfortable. Things are good. And the Lord goes, now I have something new. And you go, Okay. God never promised you the comfortable. He promised you comfort. There's a difference. We think God owes us comfortable. And then we get angry at Him when things get rough. But part of what God does with us, we are His construction project. We're His artistry. And part of what He has to do is chisel off and grind off and sand off. And we go, hey, 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 I like this stuff. And God goes, you'll be so much better without it. And you're like, but this is uncomfortable. And God says, so? Can I give you comfort in the uncomfortable? Because otherwise, life will be your comfort instead of him. Does that make sense? And that becomes the rough part. So, 
these two guys head out. Now, this Barnabas guy, by the way, he actually is from the island of Cyprus. From your village. Probably so, yeah, see? Tells you a lot, doesn't it? See, I picked on the right guy, didn't I? And so Barney says, well, why don't we kind of go where I come from? You know, we kind of know that area. And so they go from the east side, which is closest to Israel, on the way through to the west. Interesting. They also have the Barnabas' nephew. His name's John Mark. And the three of them head out. So Barnabas, so if you think about it, there is a, Barnabas is sort of the leader. Paul is the, Saul is the assistant. And John Mark is the apprentice. When they get to the west side, there is a man there that is overseeing. He's the governor, and his name is Sergius Polis. And it's there that they have their first hardcore showdown. There's a guy there, and he's a sort of a wizard of Waverly Place. That's kind of the idea here. And he waves himself, shakes his hand, and says Harry Potter three times, and things happen. And as it's the case, Paul stands up to this guy, and it's now about the real power of God versus this guy's power of, of Satan. And that man goes down quick. We do read, by the way, how many people in Scripture do we read that God says, now there's an intelligent guy. But he said that about Sergius Paulus. Not, not just because he was from Cyprus, by the way. Just... And it's interesting, because that moment, everything changes. There's a couple things that change there. One is that apprentice guy, that John Mark, he goes home. Because they're going to head down to the southern coast of Turkey, and he goes home. The other thing is, Saul is no longer called Saul. After his encounter with Elamas, but also his encounter with Sergius Paulus, who gets saved, by the way, he changes his name to Paulus. Paulus, by the way, means least. And he'll play off of that for that point on. He'll say, I'm the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the, the church that now I'm building. So imagine you changed your name to Mr. Nobody. I mean, and it's not false humility. That's genuinely what he called himself in essence. So you have Mr. Encouragement and Mr. Nobody. And literally nobody else because that other guy went home. Are you with me so far? Yes. Right. And then from that point, things change. And all of a sudden, it becomes PBNJ, Paul Barnabas and Jesus. Sorry. Right. Because now all of a sudden the young person becomes the prominent. Because we don't read about Barnabas taking the showdown. We read about Saul taking the showdown. So they go in after they head and do this sort of quick trip up and down through the Pisidian Antioch Mountains in southern Turkey. They head back to Antioch and kind of give the report. Now at that point things are, forgive me for this, I don't even say forgive me, just follow me on this. This is awesome because we get reference. So in all of that... <clears throat> When they get back there, now a big fight takes place. And the fight is over, to be honest, over this John Mark guy. Remember, that was the cousin, the nephew of, of Barnabas. See, what happens is, now with Bob, this Paul now, Mr. Paul, Mr. Nobody, says, I think we should go back and check on these churches. That tells you a little bit about where he's at with these people. This wasn't like one of those things where he got a lot of numbers, he could report it and say, check me out, I'm awesome. Look at how many people got saved at my crusades. He was taking names. And if you don't believe me, read, this, read the scriptures and find out how many people he mentions by name. I mean, look at the church of Colossae that he had never been to and how many people he says hi to there. That tells you something. Boy, if we really think that the success of a church is how many people come, but you can't even say what their names are, exactly how is that successful in the sight of God? 
So follow me on this. It tells us, by the way, there was no small dissension. Isn't that a lovely, very British way of saying it? Now, what that means is that it, the way that you can almost make that sound like is like two people are talking over tea. And they're going, you know what? Oh, what? I was thinking we should go back. Oh, lovely, jolly, lovely, just lovely, lovely. But I think we should take mind every Oh, no, 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 no. We can't take him. We, we, we can't do that. Oh, no, no, no. I insist. No, no. I double insist infinity. Oh, what is, this is no small dissension we're having. Oh, that's what it sounds like. But this was, no, no, you are somebody else. That's what we have there. Two great men of God ready to fist fight in the church. Why? Because they both feel very strongly. So who's right? They both are. Who's wrong? They both are. How's that? Does it surprise you that great men of God can still be stupid? Can I just say, here's your testimony and here's my testimony if you've accepted Christ. We were jerks, Jesus saved us, and now we're jerks saved by Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Everything else is a detail that will separate you from someone else in this room. I was a black jerk for Jesus. I was a white jerk for Jesus. I was a rich jerk for Jesus. I was a poor jerk. It's, it's, we're just jerks saved by Jesus. That's what we are. We can still try to crawl back into the jerk. It's foolish, but we can do it. You follow me so far? So what happens? So here's the problem, by the way. See, Barnabas is a people person. Son of encouragement. Mr. Encouragement. Doesn't that sound like a people person? Barnabas is a works guy. He wants the integrity of the work. That's good too. So play it out for a moment. Barnabas says, you don't understand. Jesus is about restoration. That's wise. Paul would say, yeah, but we are not going to compromise the integrity of this mission for a flake. I'm not going to do that. Restore him yourself. Restore him into the church. But don't just bring him on to the leadership of this thing because we can't have him leaving us in the middle. But he's my, you don't understand. We need to restore him. Well, then you take him and restore him yourself. Yeah, that's what you should do. Amen. Be blessed. And they separate. And you know what God got out of it? That's him loving someone and want to see him restored. That's right. Him wanting to see the integrity of the work. That's right. The way they handled it was wrong. We don't read. Interesting, when they got separated in that same place, they fasted and prayed. And then when the Holy Spirit said separate, they fasted and prayed some more. Oh, we don't read any fasting here. We don't read any praying. We read they're about to fight. It's a different kind of way of governing direction. A bad one. So Barnabas takes his nephew, and off they head to the Cyprus to go visit his hometown. And Saul then takes the, the long land route through Turkey with a new assistant. Now Paul's the leader. There's a guy that's come from Jerusalem named Silas, and that's his assistant. And en route in the middle of Turkey, he picks up a young boy named Timothy. Timothy, by the way, is his apprentice. So now Paul's the leader. Silas is his assistant, and Timothy is his apprentice. Here's the good news, by the way. We're recording all of this, so you can listen to it later online if you're going, oh, my brain's already jello. 
in the middle of that route now, Paul is in the middle of Turkey, and he wants to go north to Istanbul. And we read that the Holy Spirit prevents him. We don't read how, because if so, then that would have become our new thing in our handbook. We just know the Holy Spirit said no. One way or another, they weren't going. So they tried to go due west instead of due north. Due west, by the way, would have been Ephesus. That way we read is Asia. And the Holy Spirit prevents him again. And imagine, here you were, Timothy, this brand new teen kid just joining the mission trip. You know, this guy's been beat up the last time you were in town and left for dead. And now he is, and he's like, the poor guy can't even figure out where to go. He's like, I think we should go here. Oh, God said no. I think we should go here. Oh, God said no. You would think, oh, great. But then it said in the middle of the night, he gets a vision of a Macedonian man. And in that vision of the Macedonian man, he says, please come and help us. And what's beautiful, it says, concluding immediately, we concluded that we were called to preach the gospel in Macedonia. Now, please hear me. The question was never what we were going to do. The question was just where and when. It wasn't like, oh, what do we do? It's like, we're going to preach the gospel. God said no there. We're going to preach the gospel. God said no there. Now, hey, if we think that God owes us a comfortable life, we would be angry at him to say, I'm trying to work for you here. Shouldn't you let me in and give me the red carpet? No, no, no. God's like, that's not where I have you. See, I'm going to get you into Europe. And we should be thankful. Because of that trip, we're in this room right now. That's how the gospel got to Europe. Praise the Lord. And so he takes these boys now. And by the way, the immediately tells us something funny. What that means is, though we've been trying to go to places and we can't go, it's the middle of the night and Paul's got to wake up Timothy. And he's got to wake up Silas. And he's like, guys, guys, get up, get up. I just had a dream. We should go now. And you can see him saying, couldn't God have told you in the morning after breakfast? Now? Let's go. And so off we went. We take that northern tip through Macedonia, which is still good. And we get that area, and we start seeing, and we see the area of Philippi, and then Thessalonica, and the area of Berea. And by the way, someone's Berea, isn't that one of you? Someone in our fellowship is actually from there. I don't know who okay, so anyways, from Berea, and then as he heads through all of that area, he ultimately will make his way back to that town of, of Ephesus. And the important, the important thing about all this is ultimately, by the third trip, he will make his way all the way down to Athens, and then west to Corinth. And when he makes his way down there, he preaches the gospel, and he actually stays there a year and a half. And so this isn't just a church that Paul went, preached the gospel, said, all right, you guys, here's some basic tools, here's some scriptures, go for it, love you guys, I'll write a little addendum later, and we'll call it an epistle. That's not what we see. What we see is he was there for a year and a half investing in these guys. And then as he takes his next trip, that was his second trip, on the third as he takes it, he winds up in Ephesus on the other side of the bay. And it's there that he gets news about the state of the church. It's five years since he's planted it. A year and a half of that, he was there. So it's three and a half years he's been gone. Are you following me on that? And in that time, by the way, the church has eroded in a terrible state. That's the rough part of this. So please understand. That as Paul is in Ephesus, he's going to be there for three years teaching in the school of Tyrannus. It's important to recognize that these three guys seem to have come. Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus show up with this letter. And it says, Paul, the church is a mess. It is a three-ring circus. There are guys just parading themselves sexually. And the church is applauding for their tolerance. There are people that are suing one another. There are people that are divided. And some say, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Paulus because he's a fancy talker. Well, I'm just a Jesus and you're all stupid. And it's like, and we're all like, everyone's got their little areas now and everybody's arguing with each other. And the unfortunate thing is with all of this arguing, the church is like, who wants to join that? 
And so when Saul starts to speak to them in the first seven chapters of this book, he's like, the first six chapters, he's like, here's the basic problem. You guys are carnal. You're supposed to be coming, listen, listen, listen. You're supposed to be growing more like Jesus, but you're growing more like the world. Now, before I even go in, because we're about to get into the text, believe it or not, we're actually going to look at it. But please hear me. When you first got saved, When you first said yes to Jesus and the gift of Jesus, did you ever look to see who was mature in Christ? To see what that would look like? Because I did. And I looked around, and you know what I saw? I saw cynical. I saw aloof. I saw nasty and divisive and uninterested and apathetic. That's what I saw in people. Oh, I've been a Christian for 20 years. It's the same thing when you're getting married and someone goes, oh, you're newlyweds. That's why you're so cute with each other. Oh, don't worry. That'll end soon. And you think, don't you want to hit someone like that? You're like, thanks. I feel, well, aren't you a ray of sunshine? And you know, you're like, and, and so what happens? You're excited about the Lord and someone looks and goes, oh, you must be newly saved. Right, Shirley? How long have you been saved, sis? 23 years. Oh my goodness, I've been saved longer than that. How does that work? Praise the Lord for it, you know. Better late than never. Oh wait, this just in. Sorry. Okay, so listen. <laughs> so listen. So, so there is this problem, and that is that if maturity is being cynical, because you know more now, so you can down-talk other people, you're like, oh and then they see somebody excited about Jesus, and then they have, like, disdain for them? Oh. You're like, whoa. And you're more divisive with other people because you're like, oh, well, now that I'm older in Christ, you know what I've decided? I'm this kind of Christian, and I have this kind of theology, and I have this kind of, you know, my view on this, and this is how we practice or don't practice the gifts, and here's how we are about our praise and worship, and here we are about whether we sing hymns and all that. Here we are about what kind of scripture, and this is how quick church has to be or how long church gets to be. This is the stand-up, sit-down, fight, fight, fight. We have everything's very organized, and you guys are all crazy because you like to hang from the chandelier. You know, and it's like everybody's got some place, and the crazy part about it is we grow to that, and the world looks and goes, whoa, shouldn't the more we grow in Christ the more we actually look like Christ. So you can almost imagine Paul scratching his head and going, what is this? You look more, you're growing the wrong way. But can I just say, we do today too. Because if we really look like Christ, what we would look like are people that were, maybe we have our little places we go, okay, this is kind of where I stand theologically, but the dance floor is a lot larger than my little thing in the corner. This is just what I favor now, I'm not talking about stuff outside of Scripture. I'm talking about those things inside of Scripture. And so it's like, hey, I stand here on the rapture. You stand there on the rapture. Okay, look it. Maybe we might be more quick to congregate with people that are the same on it. But the bottom line on it is one day we're all going to agree. And I guarantee you, if the Lord comes right now, and that's where I stand, and I'm not going to look and go, ha, ha, ha. The Lord's like, I'll just send you back down. How do you feel about that now? Could you imagine? And here's the point. I'm not talking about, because we're so divisive in the church, when a cold stands next to us, they don't look any different. Because it isn't about Jesus. Because if it was about Jesus, we wouldn't be arguing over those things. We would say, hey, you know what? We can agree to disagree, but we could still praise Jesus. Hey, maybe you, hey, you know, praise God. If you're like one of those people, you love to hang from the chandeliers and scream and do laps and yell. Praise God there are churches for that. Because you'll go crazy here. 
Don't like sit down. But if you're the kind that everything has to be really orderly, we're going to look charismatic to you. We're like the hardest thing to define. We're like charismatic to the liturgical and liturgical to the charismatic. What are we? We don't know what we are. We're Jesus freaks. That's all there is to it. But if we grow to love, things start to change. And what if, and here's the difference. When I started looking in Scripture and I saw people like Caleb, who was 85, had gone to the promised land, wasn't allowed in. Forty years later, he looks and goes, I saw this area and I want it. And Joshua goes, well, go get it then. Imagine telling the 85-year-old guy, well, if you want to go get it. He's like, that's all I want. You guys want to come with me? I'm going to fight. You can imagine, well, Grandpa wants to fight. Let's go get the land. And I just love that kind of heart. Moses, we had never lost his vivacity. He talks about him 20, he never lost his vivacity. Even his sandals didn't wear out. The guy was like just an ever-ready. Where are those guys? Where's the guy that dies well? The guy that's more in love with Jesus. And dare I say, if you're more in love with Jesus, more in love with other people? Especially his saints? So I love the lost. I expect them to sin. Saints, on the other hand, I expect them to be perfect. Funny, you don't expect that of yourself and you're a saint. It's amazing what grace will issue ourselves. We won't issue anyone else. So understand, this chapter was not like Paul said, you know what, I really want to write a chapter that will make it in every wedding. This will be so good on plaques. This is going to be a great thing. People will write songs about it. Always slow with something a little bit like Vivaldi or like Box Cannon's thing. You know, we're going to make it something you can walk down the aisle to. So understand, this was actually, this whole thing was, look at, I know that if I told you, you need to start loving each other. What you're going to do is what the devil does, which is keep the vocabulary, change the dictionary, and say you're doing it. And when you do that, it's like, you know what? Yeah, I'm doing it. Love means I don't punch you in the face. I love you all the time. Some of you I love most of the time. But most of the time I still love you. I'm doing well. See how that works? That's what the cults do. You say, we're saved by grace. They're like, yeah, we're saved by grace. I'm like, well, what does that mean? And all of a sudden you realize, that's very different. Who is Jesus? Well, he's Jesus the Savior. Oh, see, it's fine. Well, let's just talk about this Jesus of yours. So understand, this chapter was Paul's way of saying, God's way of saying, love is not going to be Disney. Love is not going to be something that's just sort of you saw in a Rihanna video somewhere. And it don't just happen all night long. It happens all life long. And you can't just redefine it and say you're doing well at it because if we're going to be, hear me, if we're going to be the Christians Christ calls us to be, we cannot look like the world in the area of love. We can't. And the moment we start saying, well, we're doing okay because we're, 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 we're a hair better than the people going to hell, what in the world is that? Do you really think Jesus is like, congratulations, you, you, know, you have a pulse, everything else is the morgue, you've done well. Really, that's it? Well, you know, and so we say, well, love isn't an emotion. We say we have these really cool slogans, but it's like it's in our heads, but not in our, in our mouths, but not in our hearts. Because we still say, I love you, and we know what the I love you game is, right? That's our way of making sure you say I love you back. Right? So you go, I love you. And if you don't hear it, you go, I love you one more time, right? And then you just go, I know. It's a little awkward now, doesn't it? 
But please understand, do you ever read anywhere in Scripture that Jesus said, guys, I love you. I'll tell you where he said it. Twice. He said it on his knees washing feet. And I know that because then, right after that, Jesus would say in John 13, now you need to love one another as I have loved you. And that's what he just did. Took the place of the lowest servant. And then, at the cross. Because from that point on, God will say, you want to know what love is? You want to define love? Look at that until you want to throw up. See the meat. See the hanging person gasping for air. See the person tortured within inches of their life. And the only thing holding them on the cross is the, the fact that they knew that because they stayed there, we get to go to heaven and be with them. That's the simplest truth of it. That's why Jesus, that's why we have the chutzpah to say Jesus is the only way, because nobody else died for me. Nobody else volunteered. Nobody else was perfect, except Jesus. Nobody else volunteered to pay my price, except Jesus. No one died as a result of it, other than Jesus. Nobody rose from the grave, other than Jesus. You say, well, what about Lazarus? Well, he rose from the grave because Jesus raised him from the grave. But he didn't die for me. There's no Savior but Jesus. So you could pick your works thing all you want and see if it's good enough. But for me, I took the gift God offered me. But could you imagine? God offers you his bloody son and says he died for you because he loves you. Because I love you. Jesus says, I paid for it all. And you stare in the face of that beautiful Savior. And then you look at the Father and say, what else you got? Really? Can I do it myself? No. So hear me, and I'll go quickly through this, because I really want us to pray. This text says this is the way love should really behave. Don't tell me you're loving if you're not doing this. Because this should be the fruit of this behavior. The beginning of this, of course, he started with the idea that, look, at I do all of this stuff. And what's interesting is, notice, by the way, that whole feed the poor thing and even die. Isn't that love? No, because you could still do that and put you first. And there are all kinds of churches, to be honest, who are doing things and not loving. Because the truth is, if we really loved people, the most important thing to us should be bringing them to God. Wouldn't that make sense? We're the only ones with an eternal perspective. And with that eternal perspective, if you realize that, we should look and go, you know what? Hey, I, I don't want you to die before I get the chance to share the gospel with you. But listen, I've been out on the mission field enough to tell you that Christians sometimes are my biggest problem. Not Christians as a whole. But the same people when you say, nobody's good, and you're giving them food, you're digging a well for them, you're helping them get a peanut press so they can serve the whole community, you're rebuilding a city somewhere in southern Thailand, and you're doing all of this, and you're going, nobody's good. And then they look and go, well, those people don't know Jesus, and they're good. And they turn out to be Christians. And they're defeating the very thing you're saying, because they're like, and then you go and talk to them, and you're like, actually, they're Christians. They're just too... I don't even want to say what a word would be, but they should be. They should be telling you. And people that are desperate, well, they're going to be called opportunists. Yeah, I am an opportunist. Can I just say that? I'm totally an opportunist because I really believe Jesus is the only way, and I really believe that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I want you to call on the name of the Lord because I can't possibly tell you that I love you and not want you to come to Christ if he lives in me and he died for you. So listen, last week we talked about all the things that, he, that it isn't. It doesn't envy, it doesn't parade itself, it isn't puffing up. Remember how it doesn't seek the mine. 
And this week is very simple. It does rejoice. And I do like that. But this word rejoice is different than the last word. When it talked about not rejoicing in iniquity in verse 6, and look at it with me. The word there, carol, by the way, is the idea of something that sort of, you get the idea of sort of being cheerful over. But this word now adds the, the preface, sun. And that means together. Like synergy. It's together. Synthetic. Together. And what I like about this is where you wouldn't rejoice in iniquity, and the idea of that would be that you would actually cheer and say, yay, because of some false thing. In this case, you actually are cheering with the truth. That's the idea of sin. You're actually partnering with the truth to rejoice. And I do like that. So I'm not going to lie to somebody, you know, sort of finagle them into something and then say I've gotten some great victory out of it. I should have no rejoicing in lie. But you know what I find really interesting? Is that it's John, who you would say the disciple of Jesus loved, that would say, by the way, in Second John and in Third John, that I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in the truth. What it tells us about the people, by the way, who refuse, by the way, will receive, and I do like the fact that it says that they will, be <clears throat> they will be damned or they will be condemned from the presence of God. That's the judgment. It says because they refused to love the truth, but rather believe the lie. Because so here's the truth. And that goes all the way back to John 3 when it says that this is the verdict. That light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light. They wouldn't step into the light because if they stepped into the light, their evil deeds would be clearly exposed. I get it. It says, but those actually who do will gladly walk into the light that would be clearly seen that what has been done has been wrought or done. What has been done has been done by God. So the light gets shown, and there are those that are like, I don't want to walk into that because I've made up my own thing, and if I walk into that, I'll know it's the lie I know it is. And you know that because if you share with people, you know that's what you hear sometimes. They're like, I don't want to talk about this anymore because if we do, you're going to actually call this for what it really is, which is a lie. Hey, I was, before I even knew Christ, I didn't come to know Christ till I was 19. But I can tell you this. I was an analytical kid. And at about 11, I would sit and talk to people about God. And you know what I realized? Every person I was talking to was the same thing. I'd start talking to them. Tell me, who's God? What's he like? Well, what, and, you, and you'd see them roll back like this, and they'd start to talk, and their head would cock sideways. And, and you'd develop, and you'd ask them, what does that mean? And what does that mean? And what does that mean? And you get to this point, and you're like, so you're making this up as you go along, aren't you? And it's amazing how many people, that's really the truth. So who's God? Well, he's kind of a cool guy or whatever, and he's this and he's that. He gives me ice cream, and he makes sure I sleep well, and he blesses my food. Really? So how does he deal with people? Who goes to heaven? Oh, no, everybody goes to heaven, as far as I'm concerned. So, and then you start developing. It's like, but you're just making this up as you go along, huh? Because you just basically make him the super nice guy. So if everybody gets to go to heaven, does that mean the murderers and the rapists and all the people and the burglars, they all get to go to heaven with you? Sure. So heaven's like a place with burglars and rapists and that. Is that your heaven? So are you really making this up? Scripturally, there is truth. Jesus, by the way, would say he's not only the way and he's not only the life, but he's also the truth. And listen, love doesn't lie. It doesn't need to. There's no reason to lie. Love is honest. 
But it not only does that, it joyfully sides with that truth. And then it tells us these four things to close. Notice the word all in all all four of them. The verse that says it bears all things. It's an interesting word, by the way. The word is thegel. What's thegel, by the way? It literally means to roof or shelter. It's an interesting word for that. We read it as bears because it also applies that way, sort of metaphorically, in the idea of making sure you carry somebody or you help them, you help shelter them, you pull them out of a rough spot. I just say it this way. Because the word all is there. Love is always ready to cover or carry for the weak. And we're going to find that throughout all scripture. Paul told us, by the way, in Romans 15, 1, that we who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. In which case, by the way, there are people that are like, we don't do this and we don't see movies and we are not going to do this and we won't go near this thing. And it's like, you know what you do with that? You carry them with it. You don't drop them off at a cinema and say, what's wrong with you? You respect their convictions because you love them. You care. It's quick to sacrifice. And if it's something where it's concerning, you want to keep them away from you. Shelter them from it. It tells us in Galatians 6, 2, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It tells us in 1 Peter 4, 8, that we are to have fervent love for one another. I do like that. Not mamby-pamby, iffy love, but fervent love. It says, because... Love covers a multitude of sins. Paul would say it this way, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 9, Though I have been free, I'm free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And let me ask, what do you do with the weak? What do you do with the struggling? Now there's two different kinds of struggling. There's the rebellious and the really struggling. The rebellious is when it says, I don't want to change, but I'm, I know that I should tell you I want to change, and so I'm going to say that in front of you, but I really don't want to change. Have you met anyone like that? Now, it's hard to tell the difference sometimes until it's like, well, look at, can I help you? And you're like, no, 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 I'm cool. Well, look at, if you really wanted to change, you'd allow my help, wouldn't you? And then there's a the person that says, you know what, I'm really having a hard time with this. Can I? And I'm like, can I, have, can I help you? I'm struggling with lust. Cool. You know, not cool that you're struggling with lust, but cool that you told me so we can start working on this together. Let's walk together. Let's memorize scripture together. Let's put a filter on your computer. Let's get, on, get you on X3 watch where there's an accountability program. I get every, every person who serves up here is required to be on X3. And all it is, it doesn't even interfere. It just says if there's a questionable website, it sends it to your accountability partners that you pick. I'm like, all I'm trying to do is remove your anonymity so you really, so it's harder to do that sin. Struggling, by the way, and a person who wants help, let me say it this way. In every accident, there's usually two different kinds of people. There's police and there's paramedics. Have you heard this? The policeman's the person who has to decide who, does, who did wrong and who did right, right? Usually he has to know who to write the ticket to, the citation. The paramedic is busy trying to look and see who's hurt. When a situation goes down and something looks like there's some form of crisis, which one are you? Are you the policeman or the paramedic? Are we busy trying to figure out who did right and wrong, or are we busy, first of all, trying to figure out who needs help? I've heard someone say that actually didn't know the Lord. Ironically, their surname was Lord, who said, by the way, the biggest problem I have with you Christians is that you eat your weak. A pastor falls somewhere in the States. What do you do with that? Do you point the finger and say, what's wrong with you? Or do you, start, do you start praying for their family? Do you start praying for them? 
You see a person and you knew that they were all on fire for the Lord and then somehow they slipped off and now they're way off into something crazy. And you call them. And, and you know in the beginning, here's the problem as a pastor. You know that if I call them, I'm the true officer. They're going to be like, ah, oh, and they're going to tell you all the reasons why they didn't make it to church. And I'm like, look, I just want to know about you. Are you okay? Can I walk with you? Can you go, no, no, I'm cool. Struggling with crack. You're struggling with crack? Yeah, I'm struggling with crack. Well, what can I do to help you? Nothing. Can I take you to a rehab? No, I'm fine. No, you're not fine. How much help can I offer you? Are you being rebellious? Are you genuinely struggling? The difference is simple. Struggling is going to ask for help. But I want a bear. I want a shelter. Because that's what we should do as Christians. To be honest, because we should be overflowing with the love of God, a person who walks in a need should actually, we should be crawling over each other to try to get to that person to say, how do I serve them? Wouldn't that be crazy if that's what this church looked like? You'd be excited to come in with a need, and you'd be even more excited if somebody else did. Because it just isn't about us anymore. And then we get to this. Believes all things. Do you know what the problem with this one is? I'll just be honest. Pride. That's, all the, that's the biggest problem. Because we know if we believe all things, we're going to look gullible and stupid. Can I just say, yes, you are. But the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. Now, believes all things does not mean that you walk down and some guy says, hey, by the way, give me a pound because I'm, although I'm totally schnockered, I'm really going to use it for food. <clears throat> believes all things, by the way, when a person says, I really want to repent and I really want to get well, you believe him. You know what the opposite of that is? A cynic. Can I just say, there is no room for cynicism in the body of Christ. Could you imagine if your prostate questioned every liquid that came to it? It decides, by the way, how to eliminate that liquid is sort of the idea here. If your kidney, every time it received liquid, said, I'm not really sure what I should do with this. This could be bad. I'm going to send some of it back. Aren't you thankful you don't have cynical, most of you, don't have cynical organs? Could you imagine if your hand started to feed you, but your face got cynical and said, I think that actually the purpose is to stab me with that fork. I am not opening up. And you're like, You'd look crazy. But the body of Christ can look like that. Please hear me. Being cynical does not look like Jesus. You could think it makes you look more mature, but not in Christ. Now, the difference between a skeptic and a cynic is radical. A skeptic, by the way, is somebody who says, I need evidence. A cynic says, I could care less about the evidence. I've already made up my mind. I just pretend to be open-minded. Case in point, any of you familiar with the James Bone Box? showed up a few years ago. Actually, it's been around for quite a while, but it hit the news again. Uh, in Talpiot, which is sort of in the southern east working area of Jerusalem, just outside of it, one of the boroughs, if you will, um, they discovered this bone box. And it actually says on it, Joseph, the brother of Yaakov, or I should say, the brother of Jesus, of Yahushua. And it's actually strange that he would be identified by his brother. It means usually the son of or from what town. Those are the two things that identify you. But that he would be the brother. 
So needless to say, some people jumped up and said, well, Jehoshua is the Hebrew for Jesus. This was Jesus' brother's bone box. Okay, let's be honest. Does it really matter? What are we going to do? Worship it? We're going to try to crawl in it, rub it on our heads for anointing? What's the difference? I'll tell you the one thing it did do is it proved who was a cynic and who was a skeptic. Because the moment they started showing these pictures with this, with this, you know, with the, with the inscription on the side of it, some looked at it and went, oh, that's interesting. I should look at that. Another said, that's a phony. That's a fake. That's a fraud. How is it a fraud? Well, it just has to be. Why does it have to be? Because you'd have to change your view if it didn't. That's a cynic. Do you see the difference? And someone comes to you and they're like, I'm in need. And you're like, right. And in the city, it's very easy to be a cynic. Is that not true? But to believe all things says, I want to genuinely listen to you. So you're walking by some guy. And by the way, can I just challenge you on this? Do you know the one thing the guys that sell the big issue don't get from people? Time. Every guy that I get a chance to, I'd like to just sit down for a moment and just say, what's your name? Who are you? What are you about? I've never, in all of my time doing that, have never had a guy say at the end of that, you know, I would have rather you gave me money. Never. It's amazing how many of these guys I've had the privilege, and gals I've had the privilege of praying with. It's like, you know what, I'm sorry I don't have money, but I, I just wanted to know who you are. You're a human being standing here, and I see you every time I walk by. I just want to know who you are. Now, sometimes what will happen is it's like you take a guy, and it's like, Andre, let's go, and let's go get some food. And you go someplace nice. I mean, nice like a good burger. <laughs> and they're like, what? I don't, I don't deserve this. I'm like, no, but I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve any of this. To be honest, I don't deserve to have the money that I could use to buy this for you. I just want you to know that you're important. And the reason I say that is, is that half of the stories they might tell or they could tell, they won't tell if they knew you were listening. I used to do this with my daughter when she would get tired. I'd be reading the Bible and I could see her falling asleep and I'd go, and the elephants started jumping around the pineapples as they beat each other to death. And she'd be like, yeah, Dad. Dad. And you know she's not listening. But the moment... But the moment she is, you're a little bit more careful what you say. And to believe all things means it really is that we really do give people the benefit of the doubt. Especially, I remind you, Christians, we're supposed to be treating each other this way. So Peter says, oh, if somebody sins against me seven times, I should forgive them, huh? Oh, check me out. Here's the problem. The word forgive in the Hebrew, which should be an easy word, especially if you're from America, The word is NASA, N-A-S-A, in essence. And it literally means to lift off. I think you'll remember that, right? Lift off, NASA. Got it? You cannot forgive someone twice. I'll tell you why. Because if you've lifted something off and it's gone permanently, it only means to pull away and leave permanently, you're always forgiving them the first time. Does that make sense? You can't say this is the second time or you didn't do the first. You can't say, this is the second rocket on this launch pad. The first one left. It's gone. There's no rocket anymore. This is the first rocket. And they go, you know, I'm really sorry, but I know that I said I'd never do it again. I'll never, I'll never do it again. And you're like, whatever. Forget it. We're not practicing what it says here. You really want to believe. It's like, 
Could you imagine? Some people will never come back to church because they're convinced that what they did was stupid and wrong, but they're convinced that if they came back, no one would believe them anyway. But if love is really love, it believes all things. You say, well, I'm really sorry. I really mean it that I'm sorry. And even though the way I'm saying I'm sorry may not be the way you might want it, I genuinely am sorry. Will you forgive me? Aren't you thankful God doesn't say, show me how repentant you are. Really mean it. And then hope's offered. I think of Jesus, by the way, with believing all things, how he treated Matthew, how he treated Zacchaeus, how he treated the sinful woman at his feet. He believed them. He didn't let him go. This guy will probably sin again. Oh, Matthew, he's probably going to rip somebody off again. Oh, Zacchaeus, you are a swindler. I'm going to come to your house for a good meal, but I'm going to watch my wallet. We would do that. Hope's all things. There's no room for pessimism in the body of Christ, I'll be honest. We should be the most hopeful people on the planet. Now, I'm kind of supernaturally kind of a tigger anyways, so I'll drive you crazy if you want to be an Eeyore, if that makes any sense to you. I'm like, you know. And I'll be like, no, the cup's more than half full. And you're like, there's nothing in it. El peace means to anticipate with pleasure. I do love that word. To look forward to something. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? You die? That's not the worst thing that can happen to you. You die slowly? That would be worse. I'll grant you that. You're maimed? Sounds worse to me. But if he really is going to make the best of everything, and he's going to work all things to my good, it doesn't matter what it is. Sooner or later, it's going to work out well. Now, God forbid, you're framed for something, and you get sent to prison, and then you, you call me, and you say, I, you're my one phone call. Why did God do this? And I says, I think God wants a prison ministry. You're like, oh, are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. I know a guy that has one leg in the States. Rough for him. Lost it. And for a while he really struggled with it. Actually, there were two guys. There was one and there was another guy that actually didn't lose legs, but he actually couldn't walk on him anymore. The, guy that was, the second guy was put in a chair with the nickname The Sheriff. The first guy is a friend of ours named John. Let me tell you the difference. The second guy felt like he had a vendetta. And this guy would go into every public restroom, every public toilet in California and measure everything. The toilet paper roll, the handles, everything to see whether they fit with the American Disabilities Act. And he would sue everyone that was wrong. That's what he did. Now that man's going to stand before God with that. Now what's he going to do with all that money before heaven? Let me tell you about the other guy, John. John says, well, I bet I'm not the only guy like this. John got a, a prosthetic leg, would put it on, made sure it was waterproof, and then he would go and he learned how to surf. John, the one-legged surfer. And then John started a camp for special needs kids to teach them how to surf. That camp, by the way, is known internationally now for what he does. And he shares Jesus with these children. Which one of those two guys do you want to be 
when you stand before the Lord. And the difference, by the way, is one has no hope. And the other one looked at every one of them. And you know what he says? is In every one of them, there's a me or a sheriff. And I want them to get Christ. That's the difference. Just Jesus. So what's happening to you that you say, oh, this has disabled me and I can't possibly do this? So listen, as we go to prayer, there's one more thing. It endures all things. Love does not quit. It's just that simple. It just doesn't quit. And the problem is, is the world quits. As a matter of fact, we have a whole generation that they have, it's like, I, I was my 10-year-old who's 11 on Monday. <clears throat> I'm looking, I'm like, honey, I need you to do something with him. She goes, well, hold on for a second. Wait till I die. Like, Wait till you die? What are you talking? And then she was on the phone playing a game, right? And I get it. But if, if you watch, there's a generation that what happens is if they start poorly, they just die. And then they start over. Quitting is actually part of the game now. And we do that with marriage. We do that with friends. We do that with church. We do that with the things in regards to our disciplines. In Southern California, the divorce rate was higher among the Christian community than it was the others. Maybe because there were more getting married, but it doesn't matter. Never, never, never expect for me to stand up and encourage a divorce in the South. And just, just expect, expect the opposite from me. I don't care what the situation is. Hey, you're in danger. I don't want you in danger. But my heart will always, always, always be for restoration. Always. And I've learned this. God, if he could resurrect Lazarus, he could fix a marriage. It doesn't matter where it is. And I've watched him resurrect a million Lazarus marriages. It just doesn't quit. And you know what? Maybe I'm the first person, but I don't want to be the last to look at you and say, don't grow weary in doing well. Don't quit. Because a real coach will tell you that, won't he? When you're like, I'm tired, coach. And you're like, yeah, but this is the last moment. This is the last hour. This is the last minutes of this. Don't you want to end well? Because when the Lord comes to take us, or you cash in that body and stand before Him, you can't go back in the game. It's over. And I've watched this even with football here, which to me is one of the strangest sports I've ever watched, especially when you come from a, a country where everything has this big build-up, right? And I watched the first match I ever saw in football was, was England versus America. And I'll have you know I rooted for England. It was a World Cup. Well, I think it was the Olympics. Anyways, it was like 0-0 by the time it was over. And I thought, wow, people ran around for 90 minutes. But the crazy part about it was I was watching, and then it was like, and then they all like went to the pub. It was like, it, it's over. It was just, it was like, everyone was like running around, and one guy was like, oh, okay, we're done. And then it was, it was like, there was like no buildup. There was no anything. And I realized life is a lot like that. Where it's like, okay, for some of us, maybe you get cancer, you get something, and you kind of know that it's kind of closing. But for most of us, it's just like the game just is like over. And then could you imagine? It's like you haven't even broke a sweat. You're like, oh, man, I really could have if I tried. Come try with me. Let's try. And not quit. And then try some more. And you're like, but I got a head coach. And you're like, probably. What that means is you must be doing good because they don't hit people who aren't good. 
They leave them alone because they're no threat. And they're not in American football. If a guy's got a target on you, chances are it's because you're doing something right. The only difference between life and that is you're going to get tackled on the bench. You might as well play the field anyways. Earn those grass stains. But man, could you imagine if the Lord were to blow the whistle tomorrow and we all look at each other and say, you know what, we did it right. Hey, maybe not all our life, but at least in this last bit, we did it right. Because when we cash in this body, they're going to have to retire it. And there's no, no bringing it back. It will be spent. Hallelujah. So listen, as we pray, where are we at? Are we enduring? Or are we wanting to quit? Throw on the towel. Because the world will say, oh, another Ellen, another Oprah. Go ahead and just eat some bonbons and quit with me. And I'm going to say, no, don't quit. Move forward. And don't even just stop. Move forward. Hey, there are moments where all you can do is stand. Ephesians 6 tells us that. But when you're done with that, then get up and start walking again. And let's do it. And let's believe and let's hope. Why would you want to walk forward if you had no hope? Why would you want to endure if you had no hope? And why would you hope if you didn't believe? Do you see how that works? I trust God. I trust this gospel is still the power of salvation. I trust this Holy Spirit is still the one that convicts. And I trust that he still desires all men to be saved, regardless of how funky or weird or nasty they can be. He still desires them to be saved. I still believe he still wants to use us. And if he were done with us, he would have taken us home a long time ago. But he's not, which means you're still in this thing. And so am I. So as we pray, first of all, have you accepted that gift of Jesus? That gift that says, yes, I want to say yes to this Jesus. His death on the cross on my behalf, his resurrection three days later, yes, I want to say yes to that. Are you, are you willing to say that? And if you have said that, yes, then that same God lives inside of you. Aren't you thankful he didn't quit? Aren't you thankful he believed you when you said yes to him? Aren't you thankful that he's still hopeful because he knows what the future holds? Aren't you thankful for that? And that's the one who lives inside of you. And that's the one people need to see. So, beloved, as we pray, I want to rejoice in the truth with you. And I want to say, thank you, God. This isn't just an opinion. This is truth here. And I'm going to rejoice in it with that truth. So listen, if you've not accepted the gift of Christ, or you're not sure you have, I'm going to give you that choice. I'm going to pray a prayer, and at the end, I ask you to say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be mine now. And God will take you seriously. I believe that. If you have said yes, then let's pray to win this thing. Let's play it to win, not play it to survive. Step forward and do this for real. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I know we've been long, but I make no mistakes or apologies of it. Lord, I know that you've said what you wanted to say tonight. Not just to others, but to me as well. I thank you, Lord, that you haven't put it in me. I'm not a quit-heavy, ready kind of guy, and I thank you for that. Lord, it is amazing how many people are always just like my resignation's in my desk. I'm so ready to call it in. This marriage is so over. And even if they don't ever want to like literally get a divorce, they'll just divorce in their heart. And they'll say, you know what, I don't want anything to do with church because there was always there was this one problem I saw or this story I was told about someone else. How horrible is all of that? But tonight. You've got better for us. You've got better. 
And I pray tonight, Lord, for every believer in here, myself included, Lord, that we would be these kind of people, that would be willing to bear, that would be willing to carry, that would look for the needy and are rejoicing in your truth. That would be quick, Lord, to listen and to believe and to hope and to endure the way you intend. Because you tell us in the end, love never fails. And if you, God, who is love, live in us, and you want to live through us. Failure is not an option. Lord, I pray for those here who have been, you know, maybe they're injured and they're kind of healing. I get that, Lord, but we heal to get back in it. Not to permanently live on the bench. There's no retiring in the following of you until we retire this body. So, Lord, I pray you give us the heart, Lord, to mature like, like you would intend for us to, with greater passion and vehemence, with greater drive and greater peace and greater understanding and a greater love for you and a greater abandon from this world and a greater love for each other. May it be that what this fellowship would be known for is its love for you, its love for each other, and then its love for others. And may it be, Lord, that we'd be able to identify those who are more mature in you by those who are quicker to love. Not by those who are more cynical, aloof, apathetic, and uninterested. Lord, make us people that no matter how old we get, we just love you and more, you more and others more. And put us, Lord, in this field first to make this a healthy team that you would be glorified like you desire to be. And as a believer, I say amen to that. And I pray for every person here who's still struggling with the thought of saying yes to you. They may not know what they're getting themselves into, and, they don't, and that's understandable. But if you've made clear that what they need is to say yes to your gift on the cross, your payment for their sins, and your resurrection three days later, well then, Lord... Convict their hearts of that by the power of your Holy Spirit and give them the courage to say yes. And if that's you here today, I'm going to pray a prayer and listen. And at the end, I invite you to simply give a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, that's my prayer now. That's my words. And here it is. God, I am a sinner. And because I'm a sinner, I need a Savior. I need somebody to pay my sin for me, pay my price for me, because I can't pay it myself without being without you. So... Thank you that you so loved me that you sent Jesus to pay that price. Tempted in every way yet without sin, so he was qualified to do so where no other one would be. Volunteered to pay my price and died on a cross so that all of my sin and the world's could be properly punished. And then, just as you promised, three days later, rose again from the grave so that he could be the Savior who died for me and my resurrected Lord. And I may not understand everything, but I do know this much. If you're really willing to clear my debt, call me innocent because of this price paid, I'd be a fool to say no. So I say yes. Yes to Jesus' payment for me. Yes to his lordship over my life at his resurrection. And with that, I hand myself to you and ask now, Lord, make me what you intend. Make, give me that life that you intend that is far beyond what I could ever Ask, think, or imagine. I'm yours now.
do with me as you wish. In Jesus' name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.